One thing I know for sure, not everyone, but I would say the majority of people actually quite like buying things. So if you like buying something, at some point, you're going to have to come in contact with someone that's selling something because you can't buy something unless someone's selling it. So like immediately, everybody is involved in the sales process. In this episode, I have a friend, Stephen Keyes, who is a motorbike enthusiast, racer, TV personality, business owner, entrepreneur. He's a man of many talents. But the reason he's here on this podcast is because he loves to talk about selling as much as I do. I got to know him several years ago when we did a road trip from London to Valencia while filming a TV series. And that was some of the most fun I've ever had on a job. Steve has always been an insightful person to chat with when it comes to the art of human interaction and selling, whether it's products, services, or ideas. All right, he is on the line from his home in West Sussex, England. So let's get right into it. Here is Stephen Keyes. Okay, here I am with Mr. Steve Keys. How are you, sir? No, I'm really well this morning. Apart from looking at rain out the window, I couldn't ask for more. <laughs> Great to speak to you. It's been ages. Do you know how long has it been? Um, you was five, six, seven. I think it was 2012, wasn't it? See, now you're making me feel old. It was 2012 Eight years since we saw each other, Steve. We went on one of our adventures. Yes. We've both grown wiser and smarter since then, I'm sure. Um, I'd like to think so, but there's a few people in my life that would probably beg to differ there. <laughs> All right, let me ask you, um, what do you describe yourself as these days? Like When people ask, what do you do? How do yeah. you answer? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess I'm kind of a wannabe entrepreneur who's never quite made anything work exceptionally well, but I like juggling balls. So I always have two or three things on the go and somehow manage to scrape through and bizarrely have been reasonably successful at doing so. Yeah, I would say you're being very modest there. You've had several su successful entrepreneurial ventures right yeah. you you had your well do you want to quickly um give me a quick recap of you, your career so i mean because we call it a, a mini resume yeah <laughs> it kind of starts right back from i guess my grandfather and his father who were both big businessmen right and quite inspirational although my great-grandfather was was a great businessman I had no interest in what he did. He bought a lot of land and property and did reasonably well. And my grandfather came along and, and joined the business and just same as me said, come on, let's do something exciting in life. My mm. passion is motorcycles. So I want to get involved in motorcycles, to which he was told, no, no son of mine gets involved in motorcycles. You know, it's a dirty, dirty old game and, and nothing that we want to be involved in. So he wasn't allowed to do it as a business. So instead, he took it up as a hobby, found he was quite good at it and um, decided to start racing them. 
and then it kind of grew from there and he did quite well before the war won a lot of races and then in 1947 after the war decided to take a trip out to the Isle of Man which is uh, his father and mum had said to him no 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 you're not going out there so he just snuck off basically chucked his bike in the back of a, a car in pieces drove over to the Isle of Man spent sort of three or four laps learning it and then somehow managed to go out and win the Isle of Man TT at the first time of asking. Oh, what? Yeah. So from that, he started a motorcycle business and, and the passion for motorcycles has stuck in the family. So I've been kind of around bikes a lot of my life and, and um, in the sales environment because my favorite thing to do was go down to the, the bike shop on a Saturday from when I was about 13 mm. and pretend I was a salesman. So I'd hang around in the showroom and, and talk to customers and learn from my dad and my granddad, who were both really good salesmen. And you pick up a few tips, don't you? So it kind of stuck with me. And um, later in life, I went on to uh, join the automotive industry. So although I was very much into bikes and I was around bikes for a while, I got into car dealerships and from there into, into trucks and somehow ended up as what they called fleet sales and and then going on to be key account manager and with a mercedes truck dealership i was key account manager and had some really really top accounts that i learned a lot from and one of those was pepsico Mm. so pepsico kind of know how to market Mm. (laughs) and i figured that if i could pick up on a few ways they do things i could probably make this work and lo and behold, nine months later, I had, I think it was a three million pound deal from them, which nice. was quite a nice, sweet little deal. And uh, I think about 12 months after that, I got my biggest ever deal, which was just under nine million. Mm. So it kind of worked. And, and um, when the opportunity came up to, to buy the motorcycle dealership, I unfortunately um, was in a position to do so and went ahead and did that. Mm. And uh, that's what properly brought me into the world of business once you start running your own Mm. you live and die by your mistakes yep so that's kind of where i got to predominantly that was my life Mm. and um, not long after that actually tan i met you yep and then tell us how you end up as a tv personality today now there's (laughs) the thing it all comes back to two wheels, which is why I needed to introduce those into the, the scenario. Mm. Now, part of what we did as a family was race. And as I said, my granddad won the Isle of Man TT and went on to be very successful. My dad was a very good rider as well, and he, he rode at international level. Mm. And, um, you know, it was in the blood, so I thought I'd have a go. And um, I went on to, to win a few races and some championships and, and kind of did okay, but never you know world championship standard so i knew my limitations Mm. later in life when i had the dealership and my dad still had one of his businesses and in fact still has it um it kind of diversified into running a race series for kids and rider management Mm. so because we were going to the the world championship so motor gp as it's known i used to go into the paddock and there was a lot of high profile people in there and Mm. and I used to go to a place, uh, Alpine Stars, which probably a lot of people know the brand, mm. used to um, be the place to hang out. So I used to go in there and I used to see this guy in there and he'd always <laughs> say hello. And I'm thinking, 
just something about him seemed familiar. Anyway, he was very friendly and, and, you know, Danny as a black guy in the MotoGP paddock stands out. Stands out. He stands out anyway. But He stands out. He's loud. He's, he's leery. Anyway, I got to chatting to him and, and kind of knew him as Danny and that was it. And then in the UK at a motorcycle show, this guy came up to me and said, look, there's a guy I know called Danny who wants um, some help with some bikes. And I've told him that you're probably the man to do it. And I said, Danny, Danny. <laughs> anyway, this guy then came striding towards me and I thought, it's Danny. I know Danny. <laughs> and then the guy said to me, as he's walking towards me, he said, yeah, Danny, you know, from uh, Red Dwarf and Guardian. And I said, he's from Red Dwarf. <laughs> he's an actor. And I'm like, oh, God. And the, you know how it, suddenly things dawn on you? Mm. But it's a weird scenario. In the paddock, everybody's the same and everybody's yep. passion is bike. So it was irrelevant. But suddenly I thought, hey, now it makes sense. He's mm. such a larger-than-life character. Mm. Um, there had to be something uh, you know, to his story apart from bikes. Anyway, Danny comes bouncing up, realizes he knows me, and just says, Steve, I want a pink R1. <laughs> what? He said, a pink R1. I need a pink R1. And an R1 is the most expensive, top-of-the-range Yamaha that you can get. And I just said to him... Do they make them in pink? Nah, they do not make them in pink. I said to him, Dan, I'll tell you what then, if you want one, let's do one. And he looked at me and he said, I've asked this question of about 200 people and you're the first person that's even had a glint in their eye that said that might be feasible, let alone yes. Nice. Anyway, I said, look, come on, let's go, let's do it. We had a meeting with the Yamaha and to cut a long story short, three months later, there was a lovely shiny pink R1 waiting in my showroom for Danny to come and pick up. Wow. <laughs> now, he did a few things on it and he, he went around and he was having some fun and we used to still bump into each other and so on and kept in touch. And then um, I phoned him up one day and I said, Danny, I'm going down to Valencia for the GP. Do you want to come along? And this was in, uh, I think it was about June and the Grand Prix in November, maybe May, June time. Anyway, he said, yep. He said, we're going down. He said, but we're going to ride and we're both going to go on our ones and they're both going to be pink. Mm. He said, oh, do you know when you start holding your hands in your head, a uh, head in your hands and just saying, what have I unleashed here? And uh, anyway, I agreed to it. We got another R1. We sprayed it even wilder pink because it was like a, a leopard print pink, if you can imagine that. And then Alpine Stars did matching leathers so that we were top to tail in pink and on these pink bikes. And so at this course, point, filming it hadn't been planned yet. You were just going to do the no, trip. This was just two guys going down just, for a bit of fun. But think about that. Like today, in this day and age, if this was in 2020, there's mm. no way you wouldn't have thought about not filming it. No, I know. And, and when you say, probably in Danny's mind, he always knew we were going to film it. Right. But Danny's mind is a world away from the rest of, of humanity. Okay. Mm. He thinks that people deal telepathically. Mm-hmm. and are instantly oh. going to buy in to what he's thinking i so, relate to that i have yeah, to say yeah so you know suddenly we started doing stuff and he'd get a mate to come along and film it and i'm thinking you know why is he filming this but anyway at the end of it he said look steve we're going to film it um let's get a crew together and i said out of what because there's no <laughs> budget yeah 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 and he why worry about this stuff? Bizarrely, over a couple of beers, I decided it was a good idea. And he then made me producer. 
Mm. Now, what that's actually, um, or what he was actually doing there, is not trying to elevate my position. It was to pass responsibility. Yep. <laughs> because as a producer, which I obviously didn't realise, you know, you're it's in charge. a wonderful title. But apparently, you're responsible for everything. Yep. So uh, yeah, I, I then kind of came up with the idea because I knew Matt Roberts, the, the BBC um, presenter for MotoGP, that he should come along. So I thought that'll add a bit more kudos and he'll know the right people and so on and so forth. As it turned out, the kudos bit was sorted, but no, he didn't know the right people, but that's life. Um, but we just went ahead. We had a crew with us, car, couple of cameramen, and off we went. And mm. we produced what turned out to be quite a, a great trip, a lot of fun and so on. And I quite liked it. And we got a sponsor that um, we showed it to, who then said, yeah, great. Um, if we give you some money, go and do another one. Nice. And uh, that was called Challenge 125, which is the trip that you came on. Mm. And uh, it, obviously the second time round, you learn a lot more. We had a better crew and people like you with more knowledge on board. And it meant that I could spend, certainly on the trip, a little bit less time producing mm. and a little bit more time concentrating on having some fun. Mm. And it did turn out, in essence, to be a fun trip. Mm. Although, as you know, the weather was a little bit against us. We had. I, uh, I just have nothing but good memories. <laughs> that's because you slept indoors every night. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. I didn't, I didn't have the challenge. You didn't have the <laughs> challenge. And, and the challenge, for those that, that don't know, was yeah. that we had £125 each to get from uh, Brighton down to Valencia which was 1,250 miles, okay, 125 quid. We were on 125cc motorcycles, which are totally the wrong thing to be riding. Mm. And, uh, yeah, 125 pounds, which had to cover everything, not just your fuel. I mean, we're talking about food, accommodation, mm. uh, fuel, the crossings, anything that we wanted to do, we had to pay for it out of that. So it was tense for us, to be honest, and cold and wet fields, as you know. Mm. Uh, whilst you guys had either a motorhome or some other form of luxury accommodation. <laughs> but uh, it, it made for a, a great show and, and uh, a great series. So, you know, by then, I kind of realised that this was fun. Yeah. And can you just bring us to today? So how many shows have you done now and what's, what's happening yeah. right now? So we did, in the end, five series of um, what became known as the Easy Riders. and. Um, who knows what lies around the corner next, but uh, we've done a fair bit. We've got some wonderful plans in place and, um, you know, anything could happen on the bike side, but, you know, until recently, in theory, I transitioned into temporarily a theatre producer <laughs> because Danny's latest idea mm. was to um, write and produce a Sammy Davis junior theatre show. Oh, so, he did a great job of the writing and a great job of handling, handing over the baton of producing to me. And theatre is just a different world. I know nothing. I, mean, I was in school plays and so mm. on. Um, but somehow we managed to pull this show together, do a tour of the UK, have some fantastic fun, made new friends, reacquainted with old friends, did a tour of this amazing show about an amazing man and to be fair to Danny you know he's a pain in the ass but bloody hell he can sing and dance nice. and at 59 years of age 
it's unbelievable what he achieved and the plan was that we were going to go back on tour with it this spring but it's all been mothballed until next year at some time due to circumstances beyond our control mm. okay so cool. that that's so that kind of where i am that brings us up to where we are absolutely mm. cool all right i want to talk a little bit about both of our favorite topics which is sales and yeah. i really liked that you said even at 13 you were pretending to be a salesman i think that's quite unusual like not many people are proud of selling like they don't see selling as a positive term you know it's a mm. negative term like oh you know you're trying to sell me this oh why are you trying to sell me this mm. how do you see it there's um two ways of looking at it and this is what makes me laugh that people uh, do they turn their noses up possibly but they, they certainly see as you say sales as being um a pressurized situation mm. rather than the way i look at it it's it's a customer experience yeah and yeah. if you manage the sales process correctly you end up with a really nice comfortable sales experience mm. and customer experience now one thing i know for sure not everyone, but I would say the majority of people actually quite like buying things. So mm. if you like buying something, at some point, you're going to have to come in contact with someone that's selling something because you can't buy something unless someone's selling it. So like immediately, everybody is involved in the sales process. Weirdly, they like to hide behind a shield yes that says, I'm not being sold to, I'm yes. just making a decision to buy. Okay, so you start unfolding that. And what it actually comes down to is the insecurity that they perceive will be, uh, or, or they'll be led into by someone that's trying to sell them something. It all comes back to one thing, you know, in life, we all have to accept that and I've said this to you before and you'll love it because I know you do. Nothing happens until somebody sells something. Mm. Because, you know, we can't eat until a supermarket is sold as a can of baked beans. Mm. You know, we can't sleep until someone is sold as a bed to sleep on or a, a house or a flat or a, what. Life is full of buying and selling. And without it, you know, there is no society because the only way you get around that is to go and take something. And who wants a society where people just go around taking? It, it, it's so far in our distant past mm. that we don't even want to contemplate going back there. Mm. So my passion now in life, okay, is going out there and trying to help people create a sales environment and a sales experience and a customer experience that exceeds expectations. Yep. And I like how you said it's about finding a solution that makes all parties happy. And do you and if you think about the insecurity that you talk about where people think oh I'm being sold to he, he you know he wants to take something from me or he's trying to rip me off that do you think as a as a salesperson part of your job is to understand human insecurity and help people when they don't even realize they need help sometimes yeah it, it's 
it's all back to the, the <laughs> I mean, we've all heard this and it's really cheesy, but it's a fact in life, okay? We've all got two ears and one mouth, okay? Use them in that order. If you sit there and listen and learn, mm. the more you listen and the more you learn, the more you're able to help somebody achieve what they've set out to achieve. Okay. Now that could be quite simple. It might be um, that they want the right mobile phone, but equally it could be that, you know, I want my dream car, you know, my new BMW three series tourer, whatever it happens to be. And I want it in magnetic blue and I want it to have this trim and that on it and all these whistles and bells. But if you're in that showroom environment and actually all you've got is a green one, and your boss has said to you, Steve, if you don't sell that green one by the end of the week, you're in trouble. It needs to be out there. Now, that is the scenario where the salesman gets a bad name. Yep. And who's to blame in that scenario? Neither the customer nor the salesman, but the management. If the management have gotten them in a position where they've got a car that somebody doesn't want to buy, and you have to try and force thing, it on someone. Yeah, the worst thing you can do is that. At some point, someone will walk through that door who loves that green car. Be patient. Accept that the customer is king. And accept that when he comes in wearing his crown and he wants that green car, you can put all that glory upon him. But you can't put that green car and make it work as a sales close to a man who's come in who wants his magnetic blue BMW 3 Series Tourer because he wants that and he'll be happy with that. So make his dreams come true and get that car for him. But listen first. Never, ever open a sales environment to a customer with a pressured situation. Always make them feel welcome. Make them feel relaxed. Make them want what you're offering them and if they don't want what they're offering uh, what you're offering just accept that that day is not the day you're going to sell them whatever it is move mm. on i have i'm going to challenge you mm. difficult question so in a showroom situation you you're sitting there in your shop somebody yep. walks in you could argue that that is an easy sell because you're sitting there, somebody's coming to you. So you can already assume they're looking to buy. Now let's take it out of the shop. Let's take it out of the showroom and take it out of your building. How do you sell a thing where you as a salesperson is the one doing the reaching out? Yeah. We'll, we'll call that a, a pitching scenario. Yeah. Okay. Is there a difference? Yeah, there is. Because uh, when you're going out to pitch to somebody, yeah. so long as you're very open about that approach to start with, don't try and disguise it as being anything other than a pitch. Then everybody's happy in that environment. Okay? It may start off as a conversation with a friend or with an acquaintance and then an introduction to somebody else. But be completely open about it from the get-go. Because the minute you try and disguise it as something else, mm. we're back to what we were saying earlier, there is no trust. Mm. And the minute there's no trust, you're trying to sell them that green car again, aren't you? 
you know, it's always going to be on the back foot. You've got to be open with someone. And then you've got to accept when you're pitching that your, your failure rate is going to be massive. Mm. You know, your, your conversion ratio in pitching scenarios, unless you've done an awful lot of homework, which then means there's probably been a lot of no's, you know, you're going to get knocked back constantly. And do you know what? I'm going to give you a guess as to what my second favorite word is. Resilience? No. Do you know what my favorite one is? Tell me. Yes. Yes is your favorite word. Yeah. Because that's your means favorite that word somebody... to say or to hear? To hear. Okay. And guess what my second favorite word is? No. No, because there's no ambiguity then. I like it. I like as that. I, as I say to everybody, you know, I'm going to tell you about this because we've agreed that I'm going to tell you about this. But at the end of it, tell me no, because you're almost certainly going to. And I'm not knocking Man, you for that's that. that's easier said than done. People find it so difficult to say no. Sometimes they, people say yes when they actually mean no. <laughs> Those are the worst types of yeses. They are. And that's why I said, you know, I know that I'm going to get 100 no's for every one yes. So why worry about it? If, if I've had 10 yeses in a day, something's not quite right. Okay. I get 10 no's in a day. And that's a bonus because I could knock 10 of those 100 no's off my board. I've only got 90 to get through until yep. I get to my yes. Totally. Totally. You know, so, but also if you're going to go out and pitch to someone, for God's sakes, make sure that A, you know what you're talking about and B, that you believe in it. Because the second you don't believe in what you're trying to convince is the wrong word, what you're trying to sell to somebody, you know, mm. a concept, an idea or whatever. If you don't believe in that yourself as being the right thing for everyone to be involved in, it comes across immediately. People pick up on it in a flash. And I like that you said convince is the wrong word because we shouldn't be trying to change people's minds. I think you're absolutely right there. We shouldn't. However, you know, we do in the world of sales use uh, terms like that. You know, sometimes we, we will say, look, what we need in this in this is a convincer. OK, and it's, it's a really bad term and one that I don't like. You know, what, what's going to be our convincer on that green car? No, 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 no. That's not what we want. If a customer comes in and says, I want a BMW 3 Series, but I'm not sure which one, then you introduce that into the conversation. You don't say to people, if you buy that green BMW, I'll give you a free you know, cleaning package on it or free gap insurance or free this. Or free. The customer still doesn't go away happy. If it's not what they want, don't try and sell it to them. Mm. So be their friend, work with them. Make their dreams come true. Make them feel good about themselves. Make them say to their friend, look, you want a car? You want to buy a BMW? You want to buy a, a, a Porsche? Whatever it happens to be, a Ford Focus. Go and see Tan Lay because he's such a nice guy and he really looked after me. <laughs> Once you start getting that, you know, that's the best feeling that, in the world. The reputation. Yeah, it's, it's the reputation is one word for it, but there's a more important word to me, and that's trust. Be the man that they trust. Be the person that they trust. Yep, I and, like that. And that, that's, that's what you need in life. 
because without trust, there's nothing, is there? Yep. I've you know, used that before. To to strive to be trustworthy is probably the only thing you need to do. Of course it is. You know, you can't say that in life um, everyone is going to like you. Yep. Because that's, you know, it, it, it's <laughs> it's an impossible expectation. Okay? Not everyone is going to like you. That's just life. But if you can hold your head up and say, everybody trusted me and I earned their trust and their respect. That is a very comfortable position to be in. And I think that's where we should all be aiming. Yep. And, and it comes back to, you know, nothing happens until somebody sells something, but no one will buy something without trusting you. So let me ask you, when you're on the other side, when you've been sold to, mm. do you notice, I mean, you're probably looking at it from both sides when you're a buyer and that have you, can you think of any situations where you've been in a situation where you're the buyer and you've noticed anything about the salespeople? What do you notice? I, all the time, all the time. I, I experience the one thing that I, I always wanted to do, which is people not listening. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they'll say to you, you know, can I help you? And yeah. I'll be honest with them. I'll say to them straight away, yeah. yes or no. Because those are my, as I said, my two favourite words. So yeah. I like to share them as well as, uh, as as be on the receiving end. I think that's fair. Um, but if I say yes, I would always follow that up with a statement of intent. Yeah. Now you know you're looking at it from the point of view of somebody who thinks clearly and speaks clearly, and you respect explicit language. Not everybody yeah. is like that. Like you're, you're comfortable saying yes. You're comfortable saying no because you know in your mind you have a clear yes and no. A lot of people come in confused, mm. lost in a cloud of thought. Yeah. So what would my solution then be? Yeah. Because you tend to pick up on that, okay? And I'm, I'm putting these into um, environments that I'm most familiar with, but it can happen in lots of different environments. But oh, yeah. Let, let, let's, let's go back into the showroom. And that customer comes in and clearly isn't sure what they want. At that point, do not try and offer a solution. At that point, offer what I call the arm, okay? <laughs> Put an arm around them mm. and just start talking to them. You know, you're here today. Um, thank you for coming here and, and um, we really appreciate your time. Um, you're not entirely sure what you want. I mean, is it a case of, you know, me just showing you some of the options. Um, do you want to go and drive some cars? Do you, do you want to, you know, understand how much it's likely to cost you? Where are you? You know, what, what car have you got at the moment? Lots of open questions. And don't fire them at, you know, at that pace. That's not what I mean. Mm. What I'm saying is use that type of language and let them open up to you. Because the minute you start to get them talking, you know, everybody likes talking about themselves. Get them on their favourite <laughs> subject. You know, I mean, look at me. I've been prattling on about myself now for the best part of an hour. <laughs> and, you know, we're all having fun. Um, but the point is, if you listen to what people have got to say, you'll almost certainly get to an answer. So open-ended questions, make them comfortable, put them in control of the buying process at the opening but also make sure you maintain control 
so that they trust what you're saying. Now, how do you turn off the salesman in you when you're out in the real world, outside of the showroom? Or do you feel like we don't turn it off? Do you feel successful salespeople have successful relationships outside of the showroom? Um, do you know what? That varies. For me, it's not a problem. You know, if I'm out socialising, I'm out socialising. Equally, I think when we're out socialising, probably all of us are doing a little bit of selling subconsciously. Totally. And all those skills come in useful, right? Listening is never a bad thing, is it? No. Do you know what? Listening is the best thing. And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm quite a good listener because I'm interested in people. Yeah. That's, you that know, is. and I'm doing a lot of talking now because that's kind of probably why I'm that's here. That's your role. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm more comfortable listening and soaking up that information and then taking that away with me or, or you know, putting it in, in my back pocket, let's say, for another day. Yes. There's That's no key. such thing as an uninteresting person, is there? No. Everybody's got a story. And, and you know, the more diverse, um, you know, your experience of people is, the more diverse your experience of life is, and the more rounded a person you're likely to be. Yeah, I, 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 this is slightly going off tangent, but it, it's very relevant. You know, I, I can't believe that we end up with and this is nothing about personality, this is generalisation, but that we end up in the UK, for example, with such a narrow field of uh, humanity that takes charge of our country. You know, 90% of prime ministers and certainly a large percentage of politicians have come from this same background. You know, mm. they've all gone through school, college, university the schools have probably been privately um, funded so you know you're there and your parents are paying for your education and you're kind of being told that you're better than everybody else and then at the end of that experience people vote for you and put you in charge and then we wonder why these people don't understand what's going on in real life and it's because they've never experienced it mm. You know, and, and I'm not naming names and I'm not criticising individuals. I'm just saying that that's a fact. And I think politicians need to be better salesmen. They need to learn to listen. Oh, I like that. They need There's to a quote. learn. Politicians to need to be better salesmen. Yeah. Because what did I say a good salesman needs? He needs people to trust him. Mm. I'm saying I shouldn't say salesman, salesperson. They need people to trust them. Okay, and don't you think that perhaps politicians could learn from that? Because mm. people only ever buy one thing and it's an emotion. And, you know, when I said you shouldn't lead customers down a certain direction, mm. let them lead you. Politicians don't understand that. They always want to take you on their road. They never want to allow you the freedom to show them which road they should take and then assist you on that journey. It's always about their agenda. They're always trying to sell you that green car. And it's so a bad trait. If I can summarize with using that analogy, a good salesman listens and finds out what the buyer needs and gives it to them, right? And a bad salesman 
is not listening, is trying to just push a product onto somebody not caring about whether they need it or not. It's just trying to push it onto them. And then taking it a little bit further, if you only have this green car, this one product to sell, then your job becomes trying to find the people that need it instead of trying to push this onto random people, trying to find the person that's looking for the green car. Would you say that's an accurate summarization? Yeah, it is. It's down to, and, and that's why, you know, sales is quite a big, wide environment. You know, the word sales is it's a difficult thing, isn't it? I, I prefer, and you're going to hate this, but I think we're dream makers. We're there to, to help people's dreams come true. I don't hate it. It's you good. It, it, we're trying to help. A, we're, we're trying, trying to, to enable a decision. It's, oh. it's about facilitating, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good word. It, you know, and, and you can't say you're a dream facilitator because that's total, you know. <laughs> And I don't like that, but but we can be dream makers. That's before before we run out of time, I want to. Mm. This might become a big topic, but I want to see if uh, I want to see if I can ask you. How, what do you think about selling when it doesn't evolve? When it doesn't evolve, uh, let me say that again. What do you think about selling when it doesn't involve a product or a service? Meaning, in this day and age, there's a lot of selling of ideas right i mean not just in this day and age always mm. so do you have do you have you considered that like when you when you let's say in a debate when you're yep. trying to sell an idea or when somebody's trying to sell an idea to you yes do you think the same principles apply it's back to exactly what we were saying you can't ever sell anybody something you have to sell people trust. And if you're trying to sell an idea or convince somebody that taking politicians again, mm. that a political idea is a good idea and you want them to back it, if you don't trust them and therefore probably don't like them, you're very unlikely to get involved. You know, every time we did a TV show, it was a sales process from beginning to end. Because if we couldn't get people to buy into the idea that we were trying to sell and the trip and the magnificence that we wanted to achieve on that screen, who's going to back it? Who's going to watch it? So I think it's all down to exactly what I said. You know, you want the customer to trust you and therefore buy in mm. to what you're offering. Do you think people can be tricked into trusting you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's a good thing to do. And I think um, politicians, for example, are very good at that. Yep. But it doesn't lead to trust, does it? You know, where's the trust once you've been tricked into buying something? Like I said, you know, if you'd been tricked into buying a pair of Adidas Gazelles instead of the Jordan, you know, Nike Jordans that you wanted, you don't feel good about that, do you? Wait, a better analogy might be what if you were planning to buy something cheaper and you're tricked into buying something more expensive? Because I'm sure that happens a lot. 
So the the salesman could justify it to himself. The salesman could argue、mm. that I sold him a more expensive pair, but they were good for him. That's why I sold it. That's why I tricked him into paying more because he's、yeah. got a better thing. You know, he wanted、uh, a golf. I sold him a BMW, and I tricked him into doing it. But it's better for him. He needs a BMW. And. and- That's a slippery slope once you start saying. Yeah, it is. But also, it, it sometimes, and we've all done it, and actually come out feeling good about it. We've spent more. We on have. Product. That's true. So actually, what you're saying there is is correct in certain circumstances, but it's back to not listening to the customer, and there being no trust involved. Because how long does that? Last that experience for the customer when they realise that actually I can't afford this car.、Um, it does nothing more than the Golf. It's just a little bit bigger and a little bit more expensive.、Mm. Now I'm I'm really in trouble.、Mm. Where, where does that lead anybody? Yeah, that's a good point. And I think、you、that know, applies to what you said about the politician. You can trick、yeah. someone into trusting you for a、yeah. certain period of time. Now you can trick people into believing they trust you. You can never trick someone into trusting you, because、mm. trust is a long-term exactly emotion. Yeah, long-term. You know, so when, I, when I'm talking about trust, I'm not talking about trust for the two hours that they're buying a car from you.、Mm. I'm talking about trust, as I said, where they tell their friend, "Go、yep. and see Tan." Excellent point. I trust him. You will trust him, and he is trustworthy. Yeah, great point. So anyone can be manipulated into making a short-term decision in the moment, right? With a smooth salesman, with a suave, sleazy pitch, anyone can be manipulated in in for that moment. Yeah, but but I call that a, a disguising situation because you're trying to disguise the reality of what you're trying to sell. Yes, absolutely. Because you're packaging it differently to. To what it really is, so yeah, I, I think it's it's the worst type of selling. Absolutely, the disguise sale where the the worst one is when you know they, they sell you a car, for example, and they've hidden the fact that to be able to get that right until the last second, oh yeah, but you need this product alongside it.、Oh, that's, it the That's the worst one. That's the worst. To me, it, it's what I call <laughs> the the steering wheel sale. Like you're selling <laughs> the car, but no steering wheel. <laughs> And, and, and the car's five grand, but the steering wheel's another five grand, and, and one is useless without the other. You know, always sell the package. You know, to, to the minimum requirement, and then if people decide to take additional items or buy the next level up, that's their decision, and they trust you because you've always given them a usable base product to start from. You know, it's it's, no, it's it's like you going in to get your Nikes, and、um, saying just as you got to the till, oh, you, oh, you want laces with those as well?、Mm-hmm. As an extra five pound, they're, they're extra. You know, it's just it's just sharp, isn't it? It's sharp practice,、um, and you wouldn't recommend that shop. No trust. You've gone away without trusting. Always sell yourself and sell trust. Let people buy into it. Don't just make it believable. Deliver, okay? Understand people and deliver on what their dreams are. Yeah. So be, be the dream maker. 
Yeah. So I can summarize it now one more time, which is really, if you want to be dishonest, you may be able to succeed for a short while. But if you want to succeed in the long term, you have to be genuine, you have to be a listener, you have to be trustworthy. It's simple. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those guys who are going for that short-term gain, those are the ones that give salespeople a bad reputation. And those are the ones that ruin it for the rest of us. (laughs) Of of course they are. And, And the other term that everybody hates and everybody's met one is a pushy salesman. Oh, yes. You know, oh, it, 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 everybody's uncomfortable in that scenario. Yeah. And the Don't reason they're it. pushing is because they want it now. They want you to rush. They want you to make a decision. They want you to buy now. You've got to make a decision. tell you why they push? Why? Because they're not trustworthy. Because they don't even trust themselves to be able to do the job properly. And they don't trust in the thing they're selling. Correct. If they don't believe in it, they're going to push it on you because it's their job and they want some money. And I've been told by my wife that I need this. You know, my my boyfriend's at home and he said to me that I need a new pair of trainers and, and I've got to sell this to earn the commission. It's the wrong way of doing business. It never works in the long term. It's such a short term fix. And it it is what gives salespeople a bad reputation. You know, a good sales experience is actually a really pleasant experience. And weirdly, as you may know, in America, salespeople are held in high esteem. Mm. People actually like to be sold to. So it's a very different environment over there. And that's sometimes what we have to deal with, is that a lot of American ideas are brought over to Europe that just don't work. And the pushy salesman, for want of a better term, is a product of America. (laughs) And it's not how we operate. Americans, strangely... You know, they like a lot of weird things in life. They like being sold to. And that's probably why they like Trump, because he is somebody who pushes a sale on you. Always listen to people, always make sure they trust you and always confirm everything that you agree right the way through the process. That way you can't go wrong. Cool. Steve, thank you. And um, let's not leave it another eight years before we see each other again. Definitely not. Tan, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Steve. That was Steve Keys. I really liked the idea he brought, which was we all agree that it's okay to buy. In terms of the economy, we all We don't have a problem with purchasing. But when it comes to selling, we have reservations. We look down upon it. But how can there be buying without selling? So that was an interesting thought. Thank you, Steve. I think that's it from me for this episode. I'm Tan Lei. This is Noticing the Obvious. Join me again next time.